All right, this is it. This is your last warning of 2017 to get in now for PGA Tour Live for the 2018 season. You buy it now, you get a full season's worth at $39.99, pgatourlive.com for that. And again, last warning for the Callaway Golf Gift Guide, callawaygolf.com slash gift guide. Uh, a bunch of amazing deals there. Just go check it out, especially just to see what Chad is repping in his video where he explains to you that you can buy the Chrome Soft Truvis Balls for $31.99. Uh, that's it for now. Let's get to Mike Clayton. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast coming to you from uh, Metropolitan Golf Club here in uh, Melbourne area. Professional golfer, caddy, architect, and writer. Did I cover everything, Mr. Mike Clayton? Yeah, you got it. You got it. That's it. That's everything? Yep. The, this is, everyone I talk to says you're the guy to talk to just about golf in the Sandbelt area. You grew up in this area playing, correct? Well, I grew up north of here, really. Yep. A um, place called Easton, which is now a housing estate, sadly. Uh, and I came here to play this. And I, and I, I came to – I watched the first golf tournament I ever came to was here in 1968 before I played even. My dad just took me to watch Peter Thompson because he was the best player and that's what he did. And then I first, my uncle was a member here, so I played here in 1972, then joined here in 1975. So, but I've, you know, I watched all the Sandbelt tournaments from the, you know, 1969 was the Dunlop tournament where Devlin beat Trevino and Orville Moody played. And, you know, it was kind of a, seemed like the biggest thing in the world to me at the time. And a friend of mine came for Trevino. He was 16. He gave him a whole bag of practice balls and a brand new set of the clubs he used, which were the forerunners of the Australian Blade Max Flies that were a set they'd made in Sydney. So yeah, I, I obviously grew up playing tournaments here and playing. And what takes up most of your time today? Well, there's design stuff really. So we're. Can we, you tell us a little bit about your design group? Well, we started off. It had my name on it. And there were two other partners, and that business went for 1995. We started until 2015 years, and then it reformed as with Jeff Ogilvie. So Ogilvie, Clayton, Cockney and Mead. So Mike, Cockney and Ashley Mead worked for us in the original business. So we kind of went out on our own in, 2000, in 2010. So we're just kind of, what made I guess, you want to seven get years in, but yeah. you know, it's, it's 1995 was when we really started. What made you want to get into the design business? Well, I was always interested in it, but had no thoughts of ever going into it. And uh, I knew... There were two guys who were both superintendents in Melbourne. John Sloan was at Woodlands and Bruce Grant was at the National. And they were they thought there was room for a, another design company in Australia. So they, I was playing in Europe. They came, they came to London and we spoke about it. And I said, yeah, I was interested. And, uh, so we started from there, really. During the height of your playing days, would you say you were, I don't know, a, a student of the game when it comes to architecture? Is that something that yeah, was always interested in? Yeah, I was always in? interested in it. Yeah. I was always, I'd always read about it. I, you know, I knew who Tom Simpson was and, you know, those guys. And I knew who, obviously, Mackenzie because he was the main guy here. So, I'd, you know, I'd read the World Atlas of Golf and I'd bought, I remember buying the Marone, the confidential guide from Rod McEwen in the bookshop at the Open. Maybe, I don't know which one, maybe St. Andrews, 80, 80, no, it wasn't 84, but it was, anyway. 
So, you know, I'd read The Anatomy of a Golf Course. So I, you know, I was reading, you know, the links, and I was reading, you know, I'd read McKenzie. So I was, I'd, I'd read about it a lot and thought about it. But with, I mean, I was playing, I had no thought of Kenny Edward as, as, a, as working in the business. I'd never thought of it at all. And, and I wouldn't have unless these other two guys had asked me to. I, I would have, I don't know what I would have done, but um, that was how I got into it. Did you know that playing in this in this area? I mean, I, I don't know exactly when you started playing in this area in a lot of these courses. Did you realize how special the courses were in in uh, in this area as as a youngster? Yeah, I think I did. I think I, I mean, I had a reputation. So it was when you're a kid, you hear about how great the sandbelt is, and you you swallow that largely, which is, and it was pretty true. But I, you know, I think when I first played at Royal Melbourne was when I really first understood that there was a different level again to golf and there was a point to hitting your ball at different parts of the fairway. And I mean, Jeff Ogilvy, Jeff grew up catting there. He, he'll tell you the same thing. He said, I really, you know, when I really, when I couldn't, he'll talk about when he was a short hitter and he had to play the first hole on the, on the east course, which he now would drive on the green. So I had to go and hit it over in the left-hand rough because I couldn't stop the green. I couldn't stop the ball on the green from the fairway. So, you know, I had to, I had to make the angle from the left and run it up the gap and, you know, so I think when you play a course like that, you realize that there's a there's a whole different dimension to golf than just hitting the ball, really. What do you think happened between like what, what is known as the golden age of architecture to, I felt like, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what you want to call the period of from like the late forties through mid nineties that <laughs> is kind of viewed as the dark age of the golf dark, architecture. I think it, it's interesting because I, I, I think now is a really interesting point in the history of architecture. I think there was that core of great architects you know donald ross thomas simpson fowler mckenzie colt tilling all those guys who did all that great work who just got stopped in their tracks by the depression nothing that was the end of it augusta was the end of it and then the war austerity no money trent jones came out of that pack and dick wilson who did the back nine here at metropolitan and I guess they were the main guys, really. There was no, there was no golf course design in Australia, really. You know, a guy called Sam Berryman, who was the superintendent at Hayndale, did a couple of courses. Vern Morecambe, who was the superintendent at Kingston Heath, did, he did quite a bit of work. But there was you know, nothing that was particularly very good, really. And the world was probably a bit the same. And then I think, if you're running historical, a history of it, then I think it probably morphed into from Trent Jones and Wilson to the era. Pete Dye was in there, obviously. But the era of the famous golf pro architect. I mean, Nicholas came here and did the Australian, that was the first job he did on his own ever. And that, that celebrated, famous golf pro became the big thing in golf course architecture, Palmer and Player and every golf pro had a golf course design business. And whether they went there or not, they had their names on golf courses. A lot of them, uh, yeah, too. a lot and a lot of golf courses, and and it was an era of mass production, right? You know, and they over did, quality, yeah. And then I think with Sandhills, there was a switch. You think Sandhills was the yeah, I, yeah. I think that was the first, maybe not the first great course built after Augusta, but incredible golf course, cheap, with a famous golf pro's name on it, obviously with Bill Corn Crenshaw. Sure but who was not obsessed with building great numbers of golf courses. They were, they were worried about building a few golf courses that were great. And if they didn't want to do the work because they didn't like this client or they didn't like the land, they weren't, they weren't going to do it, which was not the way it had gone for the 15 years before that. What year was that, Sandhills? 92, I think. 92, okay. So they did that place. And then 
I feel like in the next 20 years, Doak created his reputation, Gil Hans, Mike DeVries, guys like that, who, and it's almost done the full circle back to now the celebrity designers are no longer golf pros, famous golf pros, but they're actually golf course architects. And they're the guys that people want to talk to and they want to hire and they want to do their golf courses. Because, you know, it amazes me that, you know, Nicholas's career was built around four majors, really, and everything revolved around that. And most other golf pros, they were just playing week to week. They were trying to make the top 60 or whatever, the top 125 when it changed. They were just playing enough tournaments to try and get their money out. But Jack was so good, he could... And that's the way Crenshaw, it looks like, is running his design business. He only cares about building the equivalent of major championship golf course, great courses that people in 100 years are going to go, you know, there's Jack Nicklaus' record with 18 major... There's Ben Crenshaw and Bill Cooley, those great courses they built. So So it became... They were after the triumph of quality over quantity yeah and they didn't care about the money right i don't at least i don't think they cared about the money i feel like for such a long time that golf courses were built a well a lot of them were built mostly especially in the states which is you know where i played the majority yeah. of my golf but built around building houses to sell houses yeah. yeah to yeah. sell houses and built to be difficult for really yeah. reasons yeah. that are still unknown and i felt like in the last 20 years or so there's been such a great shift towards making golf fun again, making holes yeah. fun and not, they're not a lot of these courses that have been built. A lot of the, the core Crenshaw courses are not championship level no. golf courses, but that, that I felt like a lot of people were designing championship length and level courses that weren't capable or going to be hosting professional yeah. events. And that kind of set the game back. Well, and Nicholas, I mean, not, 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 um, golf Digest had that, had that one list was the hundred hardest course in America. You know, so Firestone sort of morphed its way into the top 20 in America. Why? Cause it's hard and, so, you know, when you look at where they, I mean, the National Golf Links was, well, I guess it was one point golf drive. It wasn't in the top, I don't know. I, mean, I think it might be the best course in America. It's mm-hmm. one of the best five or six probably. And yeah. it wasn't in the top 40 because it was not perceived as being difficult. And Cypress Point was not difficult. And there was that crazy era when hard was good and easy was old-fashioned. Because it was, I think, going back to the, the other question, the golden age was, so that happened. And that, but those courses in 1960 or 70 weren't very old. They were only 40, 50 years old. Then there was the whole new lot of work. And I think now our generation or the people at this time, we look back at the two eras and clearly the first one was the better one, the more productive ones in terms of great. So people have garnered a much greater appreciation of how great that work was. And I think, I think people will look back in the same amount of time again. In, in 80 years' time, they'll go, well, that... You know, that started with Sandhills and that period there through, hopefully it doesn't stop, but that period from 1991 to 2017 was pretty good. That is some great stuff. I mean, it's been a bunch of really good stuff done in the last 15, 20 years. And it's going to continue. Yes, but there's no reason why it shouldn't keep going because there's a whole bunch of really good architects who can see a way, I think, to make a living out of it. And they're not going to be competing so much with famous golf pros. You're not going to be going up against. You know, you're not going to be not considered because Jack Nicklaus or Arnold Palmer or, right. or, or you know, or you know, some famous or Tiger Woods or whoever. You know, those guys aren't just going to be the no-brainers. They get the jobs because they're famous golf pros who are selling houses or in Asia selling memberships or selling prestige. Or so Asia was the other place where, you know, it was a massive, you know, famous golf pro building golf courses. And it was just a rush of that stuff that. And there's probably a whole business in redoing all that stuff and making it better. And I think it's it, it kind of goes to, you know, looking at 
Jack Nicholas's career earnings, right, on in playing golf yeah, versus five million. Yeah, dollars. it's <laughs> compared to the players of today. Yeah. I mean, he made more money designing courses, yeah. and there's a reason yeah. why he, he churned out so many of them. Uh, I, from my amateur viewpoint, I think, and I may be overly generalizing it to say that Mike Kaiser kind of deserves a lot of. I don't want to say credit, but kind of the the shift that we see towards you know he he wasn't necessarily the first to do this, but the huge investment he made with Bandon Dunes in a oh, very kid, remote yeah. I mean, yeah. like, location yeah. to build it to build something that was a test run essentially for like if we build something in the middle of nowhere, are people going to come? I feel like that has kind of changed yeah, did. the way architecture is done. Yeah. And another example of that being his involvement with Barnboogle Dunes. Yeah. So what was, I remember hearing some story about the land, you finding out about the land and how, how did that process of Barnboogle Dunes and what was your involvement uh, in that process like? Well, we, there was a kid down there, Greg Ramsey, whose family owned a farm near Richard Tatler's farm in Bridport. And we went down there with, John Sloan went down there, and Bruce Hepner was building Cape Kidnappers for Tom. And the three of us met Greg on the site. Richard was, we didn't even meet Richard the first time. And we just walked over this. I mean, you could see it was great land. It was only a narrow strip between the beach and the farm. But it was a narrow strip and, you know, Greg read us the I'll make you guys famous speech. And as we drove out, I remember Bruce saying, well, I've heard that speech a hundred times. I've met that kid a hundred times all around the world, this dreaming kid who's going to make the great golf course. It'll never, it's never going to happen. So um, next time we went down there with Tom and Tom thought he'd be like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, this kid's got no money. This is, this is a joke. This is never going to happen. We met Richard. Tom, we walked the land in the morning. Obviously, again, we saw the same stuff. It was really good. Um, Greg's model was to sell memberships. It was $6,000. Well, Richard, I think, said to Greg, that's fine. You can do the golf course. I'm going to own it. But if you can raise the money, you go ahead and let's do this thing. So Greg's model was selling 40-year memberships for $6,000. And he raised... $300,000, $300,000, not enough to pay for the road in. <laughs> Tom spoke to Mike Kaiser. Mike came out. He was impressed. He said to Richard, send the money back. Just send all the money back, which he did. Um, he didn't, I think he didn't ever underwrite it, but he said, look, go ahead and do it. If you get into trouble, I'll back you up, but you'll be fine. This is going to work. So Richard took some investors in and built the golf course, basically. And, you know, and in fairness, I always thought it would work because perhaps I was overly optimistic. Tom thought it would work. Kaiser thought it would work. No one else did. Everyone I told that's no one. I mean, I remember Bruce Grant going, Bruce had built some bunkers down there. And he'd gone down there. It was blowing a hurricane. It was, he was sandblasted from six in the morning till six at night. And he came back to Melbourne. And he said, no one's ever going to play golf down there. It's just a joke. It's just impossible. <laughs> so, you know, people thought it was too far away. It was, but... It was obvious, you know, to me that you could do a great course there. And I was perhaps overly optimistic, as I said, but I thought, people will come and play this. This can be really good. And there was nothing, you know, I'd been to Band and I'd seen that work, but that was my, and, and Sandhills. You know, you knew that remote golf would, would work if enough people would support it. The question was, would enough people support it? Because, you know, it's the good thing about it is it's cheap to build. All the best golf courses in the world have cost nothing to build in the last 20. They're all, they've been also the cheapest courses to build. So the lesson is go and find great land built. You know, we were at 
Sam Valley last year, same thing. That's fantastic. You've heard us mention it many times on this podcast throughout the year, but it was an unbelievable year for Callaway Golf, and they just launched what is called the Photo Issue. This is an amazing interactive magazine showcasing their best images and moments of the year. We've got Arnold Palmer's Augusta National Yardage Book, custom wedges for the NBA champs, and of course the launch of the number one selling driver, that is the Epic. Go to go to issue.callawaygolf.com and check it out. That's again thephotoissue.callawaygolf.com. I promise you won't regret it. It's a lot of interesting content on there. For now, let's get back to Mike Clayton. What is so okay, so you see Barnbugle Dunes or the, the land that mm. it's on. When you say this is great piece of land, what is I mean, you can see the dunes, you can see the scenery yeah. that's right next to the water. What does the soil makeup have to be for you to say this is great, this is great land? Like what does it look like before any golf is being built? Is it all sand there and you know well, it was, you can it was turf sand, on it? It was sand covered in marrow. Okay. So I, I think the history of that land was that the farmers before Richard had planted marrow on it to stop the sand shifting just and blowing over the farm. So, so the, the marrow was a cheap, quick-growing plant that stabilized the sand dunes. So that was kind of the history of it. But you can see that you know there were shapes in there and valleys through there. And so you yeah. you, you can you can you eliminate can, the marum and yeah. make we, grass we just, pretty just easily. Burn it, yes, yeah, burn it, and you know we burned it and shaped it and hydroseeded it. Wow. So it was not you know the difficult. When you but you were still growing grass on literally the beach, pretty much the beach. And is it easy to do that? Yeah, is that, is that add, add all the amendments to it and you know just fill, fill it up and you know make something that grass will grow into and. You could grow grass on it. And from what I gather, somebody like Richard is was not a golfer before that event. So he, he was unbelievably hands-off in the design. Yeah. The course, yeah I mean, that's kind of an architect's dream, I mean, right? I mean, Mike said to Richard, he said, you should just let them do what they want. So Richard was like the, you know, I want to say he was the perfect, he was the perfect owner, client. Mm-hmm. He just, he had no, he knew nothing about golf. He didn't about golf. He didn't play golf. So he just said, go and do whatever you want. And that's what it's. I asked him when we were down there last month, and I yeah. said, "Could you ever have imagined this land? You know, 20, go back twenty yeah. years. Could you imagine this land being a destination yeah. that people want to visit?" Yeah. He said, "No way." And I think he must, he must kind of shake his head at what's yeah. happened down there. I mean, to think that you know, he's got. I think the Golf Australia rankings came out this week. I think they're maybe two and three or two and four in Australia. I mean, if you if you'd said to Richard when he bought that farm in nineteen eighty nine that. You know, one day you'll have two of the three best golf courses in Australia on this bit of land and two courses in the top 50 in the world. Hmm. He would look at you like, what are you, completely <laughs> crazy? So, and, and the good thing the good thing was that people supported it. People turned up and they went there and they liked it. The reason it works, I think, is it's a, the whole experience of going there. Going there, having dinner there, sleeping in the cabins, getting up in the morning, having breakfast. I think people enjoy going there and getting away. And if you built the same golf course an hour from Melbourne, I think it would, people would go there and they'd play and drive home again and they would completely miss the experience of the great part about is the effort it takes to get there. Sure. And staying the night there and having dinner with your friends and drinking nice wine and just talking shit and just mm-hmm. doing what you do. The whole, the whole experience works and really well down there. That's the vibe that, you know, I've been abandoned and I've seen Barn Boogle and it's, it's the, the accommodation is like what's perfect about golf. It's not yeah. overly yeah. fancy. It's, it's exactly yeah. what you need. Yeah. And the sports bar, like at Lost Farm, you can place bets on horses yeah. and like there's yeah. TVs every, like it's just the perfect yeah. hangout for perfect. golf. And it's, yeah. that's, that has Mike Kaiser's name kind of written yeah. all yeah. over when, it. when Richard did those cabins, uh, we was talking, I said, just I said, make them clean and make them warm. Yeah. They'll be fine. People are not yeah. going to spend time and in them. And people who complain about them. Like, oh, I've heard people, you know, the combination's not very good. It's like, 
they're going to hate the golf course too. They're going to go out there. It's going to be too windy or too cold or too wet or the bunker's got too much sand or not enough. Or you know, they're, they're not going to enjoy that golf course because mm-hmm. they don't get the point of the you – know, go to Queensland and play a resort course. That's fine. It's nice weather and it's, you know, the golf course is perfect and the, it's a five-star height and that's, if that's what you want, that's fine. But Bunburgo, it's like sandals. It's, it's a bed. It's a clean, warm bed and a nice shower that yeah. works. And you, know, you, you, you put your head down and you get up and you get out of the room and, and you don't go back to your bed till you go to sleep again. Right. So why does it need to be anything more than that? Okay. And, and in fairness, he did. The rooms at Los Farmer more. Mm-hmm. That's so, where we stayed. Yeah. But it was, it was I, awesome. I think, to, yeah. We went to bed yeah. at you yeah. know 1 a.m. or yeah, something after perfect. the restaurant. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we roll up perfect. to the first tee at 5.30 a.m. perfect. It's, it's, we, yeah. <laughs> we were looking right yeah. out, the, yeah. out the door to the first tee. Yeah. Um, so what is, what is uh, I personally hate like ranking golf courses, but yeah. do you have a favorite Australian golf course and why? Well, I. You're gonna get in trouble if you don't say no, Metro. No, or no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I always say Royal Melbourne because I, you know, yeah. Because I think it's. I think you can make, the composite course. You can make an, a legitimate argument that composite course is the best course in the world. Yeah, it's probably not better than Pine Valley, but if 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 uh, if one of the criteria of being the best course in the world, it's got to be playable for everybody. Then it kind of it's much it's much more playable than Pine Valley. But you know, it's a it's an amazing course to to grow up and have it in your backyard and just you know you, you've got to remember that not to take it for granted you know, people fly from all around the world to come and play this place you know it's because it's in the backyard you know it's just just around the corner mm-hmm. so and I always love I've played there a lot you know I've played there for 40 years 45 years and always enjoyed playing there and always you know it's, it's a one course you don't get ever get tired right. of playing because I, I, you know, before we came, it's it's you know it's the top ranked. It, it's one of the top ranked courses yeah. in the world. It's usually the top ranked in the entire area. But you start talking to some local people that hey, one might be members of other clubs, but yeah, they'll yeah. they'll give you their critiques of it. Then you know yeah. it's not my favorite course. We were unanimous that it was our favorite. I don't, I, don't, I just don't get it. I yeah. mean, I, you know, we've been the architects at Kingston Heath for twenty years. I that's a fan, I love that. It's a great. I love playing there. It's a terrific course. Mm-hmm. But anyone who thinks it's a better course than Rome, I mean, really, I mean, you know, Kingston Heath's greatness is the sum of its parts i think you wouldn't say that there are many great holes at kingston heath there are a whole bunch of really good holes and a couple of great ones but you know its strength is how the whole thing comes together great bunkers great vegetation not a not a weak hole on the place no you know interesting golf subtle golf beautiful greens the whole thing is just perfect yeah but royal melbourne's got you know two three four five six seven ten 11, 12, 16, 17. I mean, there's, like, there's 13 holes that are like, wow. Yeah. You know, and there's no course in Australia that comes close to that. And, and probably probably Bamboogle and Cape Wickham get the closest. I mean, I haven't played Cape Wickham, but I've been there. They probably get closest to Royal Melbourne in terms of how many great holes they've got. The scenery adding yeah, to that yeah, as well. Yeah, stuff. But, you know, Kingsnees Kings doesn't have the ocean. It doesn't have the grandness of Royal Melbourne. It's just, you know, it's just got a whole bunch of really good holes and that's what zach zach said after our trip too he said yeah. he felt like we got to play royal last and yeah it felt like the sum the best parts of all the other courses we played in yeah. one place just on a bigger scale yeah, yeah. like I, I, we love to hear them at metro the, the bunkers that are cut yeah. into the greens yeah, they cool. do that yeah, at, cool. at melbourne but it's it's more space there's more yeah. space to miss and yeah. you know it's just i mean this land the land of the sample isn't very good the only only really great land on the sample it's royal melbourne and not the far paddock on the east course, but the bulk of Royal Melbourne, especially the main paddock, the back nine of Victoria and Peninsula. I'm not sure if you got to Peninsula, but did not. 
Peninsula has got some great land. We've just we're kind of in the process of rebuilding both those courses. They're going to be really good, I think. But you know, it's this was a flat farm. This was the flattest golf course in the world. It's flatter than Holland. This place, mm-hmm. you know, Yarra Yarra, you know, tiny site, narrow, Commonwealth and Huntingdale, you know, narrow, narrow sort of up and down sites where you really there was no routing decision to make. It was just going up and down with two holes at either end. Right. You know, Kingston East got a little undulation, but not the you know Woodlands is. Arguably one of the more, one of the more interesting sites, really, but it's not. It's great soil and and, and I want to say great vegetation, but it's not even that. But you know, they built beautiful holes. They understood strategy and they built beautiful greens and great bunkers. And but it wasn't like it was great land. It's not like the heathlands in London or right. You know, well, that's what that's what kind of again from an amateur standpoint, my understanding of golf course architecture design. It would, you know, I'm learning of this stuff, and I was blown away when I came here to Metro and played with with Lucas and Sue. Yeah. He, they showed us the book of the proposed changes here yeah, yeah. for Metro, and the, it would take me two weeks to read that yeah. thing. And the level of detail and thought that went into every little nuance yeah. made me just kind of, as I'm walking around the golf course, start to notice like a tiny little hill. There's reasoning behind that, yeah. and all the thought process that goes into yeah. that. What is uh, so? So what is? You're, you're, you said you've been a consulting architect. Is that what, that what you would call it with Kingston Heath for the yeah. last 20 years? So yeah. does the majority of your time with your design involve designing new courses or is it mostly consulting on existing mostly courses? mostly existing courses. Okay. Yeah. Is that easier? Uh, is it easier? Um, no. Because you're dealing with emotion and members right. in committees. And you know, you tell you're dealing with people who, who as Mackenzie said, I've got, the affection for the mud heap on which they play and it doesn't matter I mean, ironically almost the better the course the less the, not the arguments but the less of the discussion about things you might want to do to it um, but yeah dealing with members but having said that we nearly always get our way in the end because we make good arguments I think we make good arguments and you're prepared to sit down and make the arguments and yeah, you know, you're not going to convince every member, but if you can convince the committee that, you know, and they back you, then yeah. You know, and I think most most of the work we've done has been pretty good, not all of it, but most of it's been pretty good. What is how much does you know in the time period that you've been consulting, let's say for Kingston yeah. Heath, twenty years? You said technology has changed a lot in that twenty yeah. years. How much of what changes you make to golf courses in the last few years has been related to changes in technology? Well, it's all it's a big part of what. Well, it's not, it's not the major part, but it's a big part of what, because we work at Lake Caronup, which is where they play the Perth International, Grange West, where they play the Women's Open, which is obviously not an issue in terms of the distance. But we played the Lakes, we rebuilt the Lakes, where they play the Australian Open, Royal Queensland, which is the main championship course in Brisbane, um, Victoria, Australian Open course, you know, Kingston Heath, Australian Open course, Peninsula is hoping to have the Australian Open in, you know, a few years. So we're, most of the clubs we work out in Australia are looking at holding big tournaments, and they do hold big tournaments. So they were, they were our people say they're members' courses, and they are members' courses, but they were built to be our equivalent of Shinnecock Hills and Carnoustie and St Andrews and Pebble Beach, and they they were our championship courses. They were designed to test first class play. That was where they they were where important tournaments were going to be held: the, the state amateurs, the Australian amateur. You know, big amateur events, you know, the National Open, the State Opens, that was where we held our... So they need to stay relevant for modern players, unfortunately. I mean, I'd be perfectly happy if they didn't come here and, you know, but you, you saw how far Lucas hits the ball. I mean, I mean, this was a long goal. I mean, we saw, we were just watching a 
Greg Norman played the last hole of the 1979 Open off what's not now the back tee, off the old back tee. I remember watching him play. Oh, he smashed a drive in a five iron in the middle of the green. I mean, if Lucas off that tee to drive in a five iron, he's literally flying the ball into the clubhouse. <laughs> so, and Greg was the longest here in the world at the time, really. He was certainly one of the longest, three or four. So these courses are all in a race to keep themselves relevant for the tournaments that they're, that they're holding and they're going to hold. So it's fine for you know, all those great old clubs in America that don't care about pro golf and don't have pro golf tournaments, they can stay or, or Woking or Swinley Forest or just leave them as they are. They're fine for, not, for most of the members who play, they're perfect. But in Australia, our best courses are also the courses that hold that were, that were designed to test first-class play. So they, I think you've got to keep them as relevant as you can for that. But, the, but there comes a point where, you know, this would be my argument with Brandall Shambley, is there comes a point where you can't just do what Augusta do and knock the fence over and Buy, buy Augusta Country Club or go out into the, go out into the road or you can't just That's not what my buy houses and you know you, was going to be it's, so it's not, the answer is not building new tee boxes not building new tees it, you know it's, clearly it's you've got to something's got to happen with the golf ball it's cast but because it's not going to it's not going to stop I mean anyone that thinks it's you know I remember when John Daly watching that PGA in 1991 people were astounded at how far he hit the ball that was beyond imagination how far he was driving it past Kenny Knox that last day. And the distance he was hitting it was just routine. Now that was it was just it was, if if someone came out hitting the ball that far now, it would just be a normal hitter on the PGA Tour. So people think, well, surely Dustin Johnson, you know, and Bubba Watson, surely well, why aren't they going to be the John Daly in thirty years' time? Well, those guys weren't that long because there'll be some, you know, as Gary players here, some black guy's going to come along who's six foot eight and he's going to hit the ball four hundred yards, and he will, and they will. I think it's you know Mackenzie, you know, he, golf. I can't remember if it's golf architecture or the spirit of St. Andrews, but there's no limit to science. And apparently anyone who thinks there's a limit to it is crazy because clearly, you know, you went from Norman, I saw Norman in 1974. I mean, he was unbelievably long in 1974. To go from that to Daly to Johnson to why is it going to stop now? You know, you think those guys are going to, they put them out on the moon, they can't, they can't make the golf ball go further? You know, you know I mean, and Tana may do an ad last week and some famous pros done up. I don't know who it was. Dustin Johnson, I think it was probably. You know, new club, three miles an hour more ball speed. Well, maybe the ball. You know, it's, it, the ball's the solution. It's not the. It's not the. It's not the. It's a part of the problem. Right. But it's the easiest solution. Sure. I yeah. think. You know, I mean, some people clearly disagree, but you know, it's just craziness in terms of what's happening. I think. I think the conversation on technology and distance can get lost in in, in that. You know, some people's arguments I hear against it are saying, well, they can just grow rough, taller yeah, and, yeah. and make players more yeah. punished for going yeah, wide. It's, just, it's not necess- the, the point. And, you know, and hearing Jeff talk about it and just kind of saying, and when we were out at Melbourne last month, Zach and some of our guys played uh, World Melbourne East back tees with hickory clubs yeah. and balls from 1983 yeah. that you provided. And hearing them talk about just the bunkers that came into play yeah. and the style of play that well, came into play, it's, it's, so much it's, more it's eye-opening. It's, it's so I, much more oh, fun. Oh, totally. That's I didn't what, play it. But. That's, that's what I get is that it's actually so much more fun. Uh, where the debate gets completely sidetracked is people think it's about the scores. How do we make the score? How do we keep the scores up? Well, clearly, I could set this golf course up. So 301, you make 15-yard wide fairways and you grow the rough of sure. you can, I can make 300. I can make the best players in the world shoot 300 here if I wanted to. That's, it's not about the scores. It's about how the holes play. I mean, a hole that Alistair McKenzie saw as a long two-shot hole, which may, might be a par four or a par five, a long one-shotter, which might be a 
It might be the 10th at Royal Melbourne or the 16th at Royal Melbourne, one at par four, one at par three. Or it might just be a good, strong, you know, driving midline hole. Well, there is no good, strong driving midline anymore. So it's how, it's how they saw their golf courses playing. And it's fine to... Oh, it's, it's actually not fine to disrespect what those guys did. They were the greatest architects ever. They left all these amazing treasures. And if they came back... If Mackenzie came back now, he'd tear Brandle Shambley's head off. He would like a, or, or Peter Dawson or you know, Wally Uline or whoever's in control... Whoever's, or Mike Davis, whoever's in control of making this decision. Yeah. He would just come back and just tear them apart. Yeah. And, and they would... You know, I think... He's almost the one guy you need to come back. Yeah, clearly it's not happening, but if you're not respecting Alison McKenzie, who, who do you... I mean, Bill, Bill Cause is the guy now, really. And Bill's probably too nice a guy to get into the argument. I mean, you know, McKenzie was pretty belligerent and pretty tough and pretty opinionated. Bill's, Bill's not that. So, and, and, you know, I, I can guess what Ben thinks about it, but they're too nice and gentle and not going to rock the boat. You know, so it, it would take someone like McKenzie to rock the boat, and mm-hmm. like come, but he would come back and just... He would howl the world down. Yeah. But and he said, didn't you read my book? You know, I told you this was going to happen. Right. I told you this was going to happen. You know, I, I said when I wrote my book, leave space behind the tees to move the tees back. Well, now we're up. Now the first tee at Kingsley's up against the clubhouse. The right. 70 tees up against the road. You can't go back anymore. Right. And, and maybe people in America don't care about, but I care about Kingston Heath or Royal Melbourne or, or their relevance, but I care about them. We I got care, courses there you know, too. I care about Sunningdale. I care yeah. about... You know, they're important courses that should be, you know, Bobby Jones is great. You know, we played with Hickory Shafts yesterday. Mike Cocking and Jeff, we, played, we had our Christmas break up. So Mike's got that, that new, is it Louisville Golf who make those new Hickory clubs? And he played with a copy of Bobby Jones's driver. And it, I mean, golf was cool. And how much fun is it to play with that? I mean, really fun. And, and he hit it, he can hit 270 yards, which tells me, it's the ball. Right. You know, it's the, it's the, the ball's a big part of the deal. And that's what the playing with those clubs, they said, you know, the, their center hits, they went. I mean, they went yeah, way further they than go, they, they thought. They fine. Your miss hits, they though. Fine. They, it, so, yeah. to me, in, I, I, I think there's such a difference between, at one, I think hitting the ball far is definitely a skill. I think it is. Absolutely, yeah. But the, where, where technology kind of ruins it or where the game gets ruined is it when you can use distance to get past all of the trouble off the tee to the point where there is yeah. no trouble. And it, to yeah. me, you know, if I'm playing a tee box that I know that I'm looking at all the bunkers and I can hit it over all of them mm. and it's safer, yeah. I'm thinking I either, okay, I'm not playing from the right tee or this kind of kind of feels like cheating. Now there's golf holes that, you know, will let the longer hitters take on certain risks to get yeah. in a certain area. If you're met with the proper punishment yeah. for mishits, then yeah. I think that's a fairness in design. But yeah. some of the lines Dustin Johnson takes, he just eliminates bunkers. Well, that's, what was that playoff he played with Jordan Spieth? Yeah. Where that, was that the first playoff? I mean, in just, New York, yeah. You know, you, you know, the thing, if you can hit it 20 yards further, you can get 90 yards closer to the green. And sometimes that kind of works in a hole. But if you just hit, you know, someone can get over the lake and someone can't then. But, you know, the mistake is to obsess about the scores. Sure, totally. It's, I totally it's agree. not about this. It's about how do the holes play? What, you know, how do these guys want these holes to play? What did Donald Ross want at Pinehurst? You know, what did Mackenzie want at Royal Melbourne and Augusta? And, and if Augusta's, I mean, Augusta's a different case because they, they can just keep going back. Yeah. And you just spend the money and just keep going back and back and back and back until it's crazy. It's you know, silly. You know. But, you know, the old course, I mean, John Huggan, my friend, writes about, you know, they play the open on. It's on four different golf courses. Second green's on the Himalayas punting green. Ninth tee's on the new course, I think. The 14th tee's on the whatever course it is on the other side. Of the Eden course. Thing. And the 17th tee's out of bounds. <laughs> you know, so he said, it's, you know, people say, well, what, what, where do you go? What, what do you go back to? And 
you know, you, well, and Huggy's point is, when you go back to when they, when they, when, when, the point where they started going off the golf course on, on the old course. But what do you go back to? I mean, I think early on, it was the fight between the player and the equipment, the player, his equipment and the golf course. You look at those scores at Presswick and the early opens, I think I can't remember the first time they broke three. Maybe in 1920 was the first time on the old course they broke 300 maybe, but whatever. You know, it was, the fight was clearly in favour of the golf course. The golf course clearly had the upper hand. You know, not very good mowers, no fer- not very good fertilisers, greens that putted like fairways, balls that didn't go very far, you know, hickory shafted clubs and you know it was hard to get a match set even and the fl- the, the advantage was clearly in favour of the golf course steel shafts came in McGregor Spalding Wilson started making great clubs the balance was pretty even I mean, not that I played in that era obviously but you know from Nelson and Sneed and Hogan and Middlecoff and those guys through to you know Norman and Nicholas and Faldo and Sevian with the ballada ball and the wooden drivers. The balance between no, 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 I don't remember anyone ever complaining the ball was going too far in the seventies or eighties. You know the balance was pretty fair. I mean, golf courses got a little longer, but not really. They changed the par of. I mean, the, where I was at Kyonga the other day, Gary Player he talks about being ten under after ten, and he was in the Australian Open the third day, but the second hole was a four hundred and sixty-six yard par five, and the tenth hole was a four hundred and 55-yard par five. So the par's changed. Or they moved, in Kionga's case, they moved the greens back. But, you know, the balance was pretty right for a long time. And then it just went, you know, the big Bertha came in, then the greatest big Bertha, then the Pro-V. And it's, now it's complete. The golf courses are utterly without defence. They're utterly helpless in the face of... So the balance has gone from being in favour of the course to the, 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 the golf course, in inverted commas, being utterly helpless. Unless you just go into the US and just grow long grass all over it. And then you go and read Mackenzie's book and how those guys thought golf should be played. And it's like, Mackenzie, it's not, this is not what golf is. Golf was, you know, to Mackenzie, I think, it was, it was Augusta, St Andrews and Royal Melbourne. Wide fairways, no long grass. Figure out for yourself where to go. And the defence was, there was a balance between the ball and the, the clubs and the course and the player. And it was, there was the wind and the greens were firm and you had to figure it out. Isn't, is, is... You know, I look at it and I've played a lot of golf in the UK. I've played here. And, and yeah. to me, the main difference is you just you don't have that type of turf and soil all over, like, say, in the States. And the States yeah. is kind of the root of a lot of problems, right? But, well, America's got, the, like, America's got the worst climate in the world for everything. I mean, it's a horrible <laughs> climate, apart from Southern California. Yeah. So that's the, that's, a, that's the big part of the problem. Yeah. Damn, sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say that <laughs> so much goes back to if you get a course playing fast and firm, yeah. it becomes the ultimate test yeah, of does. your ability to yeah. control the golf ball, yeah. whereas PGA Tour golf these days is mostly yeah. fly it to this yeah, part to, of the fairway. To, to land the ball in one place so it finishes in another, yeah. which, which is the... Which was Thompson's argument about why he didn't like golf in America, because he said it was it was like the difference between baseball and cricket. Right. In cricket, the ball bounces. Yeah. You know, and in baseball, I've never played baseball, but I'm sure it swerves around the air. But you know, the art of landing a ball, hit, hitting the ball with the right force and the right trajectory, landing it 40 yards short of a green, having it bounce on is that's what he thought golf was. Right. And that's the funnest, coolest way to play. And, totally. And the only place to find that in Australia really is Bumbergle. And but you find it all over the UK. You, know, you go to any of those courses by the sea, and, and inevitably, as it went inland, and it went to America, it was going to be soft, and because sure. it's what the climate is. It's what the climate is going to, you know, it's hard to 
So it became a game of what you did through the air. And so how do yeah. you how do you challenge today's mod? So let's say the golf ball doesn't change, equipment doesn't change. How would you suggest golf courses set up to try no, to challenge the top players? Well, <laughs> There's no answer. Well, it depends on the weather. Sure. You know, if you can, if, if if you're lucky enough to be at, by the coast somewhere, Bandon or Shinnecock or National or Cypress Point or Seminoles, I mean, you can you can rely somewhat on the wind. But you know, how do you? What do you do when it, you build a 520 yard par four and Dustin Johnson's going to drive a nine iron and <laughs> all the strategy you build into it? If the green's soft, it doesn't matter. So, you know, can you get the greens firm enough and can you get it bound? And then you go to, I didn't go to Aaron Hills, but the golf course looked pretty good to me and it got the golf course seemed like it got utterly ripped apart, criticised by the critics who think the US Open should be, what was it, Marion, when it right. was just narrow fairways and high grass. And there was no wind and they shoot, what do you shoot, 15 out of 12 or 15 out of 16, like, I think. No, there was so not that. Really, this is not really US Open, but, you know, that to me looked like, I mean, I've never been there, but I've been to Sandhills, which is, you know, you could tell the US Open to Sandhills and don't, dare criticize that golf course but if there was no wind then someone's going to shoot 15 right. right but if you the know. wind doesn't blow in the open championship no one says anything yeah if you yeah go 18 you know, under. I've, I've played the open i played that open at Feldo one in 1990 i mean 19 under par i mean it was yeah. it was the easiest four days ever but no one it was it was you know daily comes back in five years later and shoots five under par or something which, you know when he beat rocker and so it was just a completely different week it was windy and tough and it's, but yeah. it, go back to what happened in 2015 where they set it up pretty tough. They shaved the greens yeah. pretty much, and the wind blew. And they can't play. They couldn't play. Yeah. So the, the, you can't set up a golf course to be extremely hard when there's no wind. Some of these wind-based yeah. courses like yeah. Aaron Hills, yeah. I thought the criticism if it, was unfair. Yeah, like, if, if there's no wind. Yeah. But, but clearly you need to build if, – if it's a windy place, you can't be building 30-yard wide fairways. I mean, at Bamboogle, sure. you, ha- you had to make the fairways 100 yards wide. Because if it, if they're not, you can't play the golf course. And the crosswinds, yeah, yeah I mean, some of the courses make so any place that's by the sea has got to. You have to have width. You can't just you know. And you look at what that the fast that open at Carnoustie descended into in 1999 when you know seven over par makes the playoff, and it was a miserable week of good players just hacking the ball out of long grass all right. day. Well, that's not what Carnoustie should be about. What do you think Alistair McKenzie would say if he saw modern day Augusta National? How different is oh, it from God. the course that he, desi- he well, desired? He, he would. He would recognize the routing. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't recognize the order of the holes because obviously the front nine was sure. the back nine. And, you know, he, he would probably like the 10th hole and he would, I think he would shake his head at the trees on the right of the 11th hole because what are these trees here for? You know, you know if, you, if you wanted to play at it to the, the extreme side of this fairway, I gave you room to play it and now you can't play here at all. So you lost that element of it. You know, I think he would, I don't know what he'd make a 16. It always looks like a windmill hole to me, that one. Um, you know, I, th- I think he would. I don't think he'd love the look of the bunkers. You know, I think he would say, "Well, this is not what I didn't was golf meant to be. This pristine and this perfect." Um, I think he would like the way they've kept most of the greens. You know, they were they were, they were pretty cool defense, fourteen, and you know the greens that if you built them now, you get slaughtered for it. You know, right. fifteen and five and some of those greens. But you know, I, I think he would. You know, he would say, didn't you read my book about, you know, golf pros? Who, who put this bunker on the right of the second? Oh, Gene Sarazen. What did Gene Sarazen know about golf course design? Was he a, was a golf course designer? You know, I mean, it looks like, it's, you know, he, if, if Mackenzie had wanted a bunker, he would have put one there, I yeah. think. You know, Nicholas put the bunkers there left of the third hole. I mean, yeah, maybe they were. I mean, I've, I've never played the golf course. I've walked around it a bunch. But, you know, I think he would look at some stuff and, you know, think that he did a pretty damn good job. You know, I know Jeff thinks they're the best, one of the best sets of greens in golf, and they're certainly a great defense of that golf course. But he would not recognize how 
the course played sure. in terms of how long it is now. But you know, and I think he would. I think he would have preferred that rugged kind of more natural look. I mean, but you know, it's it's pristine, perfect, and it is what it is. And you know, people talk about the Augusta, the effect of Augusta in terms of it being negative. Yeah, the thing that amazes me about American golf is Augusta has no influence over American golf, zero. Because you go to every PJ Tour course and there's four cuts of rough around all the greens and narrow fairways. And, you know, what, why aren't more people following what Augusta? I mean, everyone in Australia basically follows what, you know, certainly we have is, do, you know, we have a, a pretty basic rule in the office is whatever, you know, whatever Royal Melbourne do, try and do that. Mm-hmm. You know, wide fairways and no, you know, no, no cut. You know, it's, it's short grass or it's wild rough. Right. You use the it's short not grass. Step cuts of rough and this perfect. You know, this crazy. So you know, arguably Augusta has almost no influence on golf in America. Certainly not PJ Tour golf because it's all about equity of punishment. And or well, if you know, one of the PJ Tour guys came out to Royal Melbourne. And he said, you know, he said, of course, but there's no rough. Well, yeah, yeah that's, that's the whole point of the place. You know, if you miss a green, you know, you know go back to Royal Melbourne, you know, one, the one hole, one sort of hole that, one type of hole that's gotten harder are the short par fours in Melbourne. Because when we were kids, they were all just ten, 10 in Royal Melbourne, apart from Seve, who drove at the green, it was just a two on up to the right and a wedge on the green. And 15 in Victoria was a three on and a wedge. And, but now for the guys, the guys can drive, and they're much more dangerous now. Yeah, I mean, because that, they can drive them, they're way more dangerous now. But that's an example. So, of so that's like, the irony: is the holes that are even better than they were when they built them, and they're more dangerous, and they they create more bogeys and double bogeys are the short holes, sure. the short par fours, because they're because they're tempting and they're dangerous, and you know you're tempted because you can get on now, you and you you don't don't fall into the trap, right? You know, that's a fifteenth of at, at Victoria is a great example, great hole, yeah. a hole that. <laughs> the short grass you use the short grass to punish you so like yeah. if you go long left on 15 like yeah. I, I had to play a 70 yard shot back yeah. into that green yeah. because it just kicked down yeah. and rolled and rolled and rolled and yeah. that's kind of what Augusta used to be like the short <laughs> yeah. grass if you're offline short grass is a hazard the ball's yeah. not going to stop it I yeah. mean there's nothing there to stop it so it's going to yeah. go and go and that, the reason yeah. why I asked that is just reading books about the building of the Masters and, and Mackenzie's emphasis on angles and, and yeah. you know wide fairways and letting players choose yeah. their route to the green That that's pretty much gone at Augusta and that was kind of the spirit yeah. of the entire I think he would. I think he would I don't think he liked the seventh hole very much. Certainly no, not that. You know, not no, a lot of people do. Yeah, Seven and eleven yeah. are the two probably most drastic yeah. changes in the last yeah. twenty years, yeah. and that's yeah. You know, and I don't think he would like the trees left of fifteen. I think you know no. those trees are kind of funky. And, yeah, but the problem, you know, fifteen there's a hole that's you know was Tiger getting wedge to it. You know, yeah. sandwich. Yeah, sandwich in, no, <laughs> in nine, yeah, And now it's kind of I don't know what Dustin Johnson to it, but I can't imagine he's seeing very much club in there. Seven or something. I don't know what it is. It's a, it depends on the yeah. wind, of but course. I mean, there, you know, you look at those, you know, Curtis Strange where he lost that Masters when he hit the. Five wood in the water, and Seve hit that great three on. And Watson, I remember Watson and Couples hitting great long irons into into you know necklace into into thirteen. When that was when it was cool. That was when the Masters was really cool. Sure, it's always got a cool tournament. But you know that was when you know thirteen was great. Was when the tee was on their property, and not Augusta Country Club property. And they, 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 you know the best players in the world were ripping three irons in there. You know that was when you know it's not a no interest if it's a driving a seven iron. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What do you think a realistic? I feel like there's a lot of momentum right now for some kind of change in technology, limiting in some capacity. Yeah. What do you think is a realistic next step in the process for limiting technology in some capacity? I think they've just got to fix the ball. Yeah. Just change. I mean, I, I, I know. I assume they've made balls that will go 20 yards less, 30 yards less, whatever. But to me, it's like let's go back and reg because that's the easiest thing to regulate. You're not going to go and 
take a massive headed tailor made drive. I mean, I would if you could. I would absolutely do that. I mean, go back to that that beautiful tightless driver that Tiger used in the you know the two in nineteen ninety nine. That that was a sensible size club. Mm-hmm. That was a great looking club. I thought beautiful club. Uh, but given that it's going to be hard to take a four hundred dollar driver out of the bag of every, you know, go back and fix the ball up. You know, go and regulate the ball. And people say, well. You can't bifurcate the game. Most of the Americans who don't even know, probably, or will certainly have forgotten that the game was bifurcated for 60 years. We all played this. We grew up playing the 1.62-inch ball. And when I, in 1997, 1977, thought I might be, want to be a golf pro, I decided that I was never going to hit another small ball again, and I switched to playing the big ball. And everyone said, you're completely crazy. You're giving up 25 yards. Well, I won the Australian Amber in 1978. I was the only guy in the field using a big ball. Really? And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a pro, I'm going to have to learn to play with this golf ball. I'm not familiar with this era yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of two balls in play at once. Yeah. I didn't realize so, so, that was the case. So, the, so, so other guys started to use the big ball who felt, you know, if we're, you know Grady and Peter Senior, if we're going to be golf pros, we're going to have to play the big ball. So Peter Thompson would talk about, you know, players would come out from America. David Graham would come out and Thompson would say, not sure why he's using the big ball. He's giving up twenty five yards. I don't understand it. So we had bifurcated tournaments. Not not the but, but we had players using both size balls because obviously the big ball was always legal. Just no one ever played with it. Because why would you play with a ball that went twenty five yards shorter? So it more then the tour man the British Open mandated the big ball in seventy four. The tour here I think in seventy eight did the and then amateur tournaments started too. So after I turned pro in the there was a little window of a couple of years where the big amateur tournament said you have to play the big ball. So if you wanted to play in the state amateur, you, you play with the, the Australian amateur, you play with the big ball. So that happened in, you know, and then in, I think in 1984, when with a stroke of a pen, America decided that, well, the world, America essentially dictated that the world was going to play with it. Well, the people who ran the game reasoned that this was made no sense. We're going to, have a uniform ball which made perfect sense and it was a great decision but America with a stroke of a pen took 25 yards off every golfer that wasn't Canadian or Mexican or Argentinian or South American or or, or, or from, the, from the United States they took 25 yards off every player in the world overnight and I don't remember anyone complaining about it mm-hmm. I mean you know you, you threatened to take 25 yards off America's golfers and the, you can't take 24 well, you did it to the rest of the world you know, you just didn't know about it because mm-hmm. it wasn't news in America, and no one complained about it. The world didn't cave in. People just took the big ball out and they played golf, and they their scores didn't. And it was twenty five yards in theory and practice. It didn't make that much difference. And this is a sidetrack, but the Iron from seventy seventy four when they mandated the big ball in the Open, within five years, Seve had won the Open, and and that change spawned that great era of European players. And, that, that, and they, I'm convinced that never would have happened if they'd stuck with a small ball. Because it was harder to play. The big ball was harder to play with. Because they were basically made in America. So they were made for no wind. And you try, try and play a tour, you know, a pro trads tightless in a British Open. I mean, the thing was a nightmare. <laughs> so tightless made a low trads ball. DDH made a great wind ball. But within, it was no coincidence that within five years of the big ball being mandated in the Open, my generation of player, which was you know, all the guys my age, Feldo, Langer, we were all same age they switched to the big ball and within within 10 years they were dominating Augusta they were the best players in the world mm-hmm. and that would never have happened if they'd stuck with the 1.62 inch hmm. ball 
Anyway, that's kind of no, no. That's, that's my, no. That's good history. That that, that's, that's good precedent yeah. to set to say like there can be changes made. But I mean, yeah. is it realistic that you know Augusta would be the first tournament to do a, a different well, yeah. ball? I mean, that's the obvious, but they're not going to do it. You don't think so? Uh, well, they should, but I don't think they will. Yeah. Players seem open to it. Players yeah. seem more open. Well, of course than they would, because they're not going to not. If, if it was if it was the Atlanta Classic, they're just not going to turn up. Mm-hmm. But if it's Augusta, you know, the boss of Titleist can't say you to to. He's, I don't know who's the Titleist best player. I keep track of who plays which one for now. But Rory is it Rory play Titleist. He's tailor made now. Well, I don't know, but whoever. Yeah, Jeff Ogilvie. <laughs> you, know, you can't play the Masters because. You know they've, oh, got, they've yeah. got that silly ball. That you, <laughs> we're banning all Titleist players from playing the Masters. Good luck with that. That's not happening. I just don't. I don't buy <laughs> no. that. And I know that equipment companies, especially Titleist, are, are are especially resistant against changing yeah. the ball. I don't buy that. You know, consumers can't figure out what ball is still best for them. Yeah. I mean, the ball won't see change why, for us. Why are they going to sell? I don't get what the argument is. You know, and again, you know, Brandel Shambly this morning on Twitter. Not that I want to bash Brandel because he's a, I like him. He works with Frank, one of my best mates, and. You know, I, was, I think he's good at what he does, but I, I completely disagree with him on the stance that the ball's okay. Right. And I forgot what I was going to say. Um, that's right. He, he's, who's, he said, "Who's going to pay for this?" So I, I sent a tweet out. I said, "Who paid Spalding, Slazenger, Dunlop, Uniroyal, Penfold, Bridgestone? Who paid them? Right. To throw their small ball machines away overnight? <laughs> They're all, you know, who, who compensated those guys? Yeah. I mean, seriously, you know." Yeah, and that's laugh, and Jeff's comment too at the Australian <laughs> Open was just you know either like in in baseball back in the states you play um, yeah. you know, professional baseball they play wooden bats yeah. it's either that or change all of the stadiums yeah. and in golf we've decided yeah. to change we've, all tried the to, stadiums. we've decided to change the stadiums and, and yeah you know, and and stadiums aren't architecture it's just a round patch of dirt sure you know th- these are great pieces of architecture built by you know the the greatest architects who ever lived. And if they came back, they wouldn't recognise that. I mean, as much as Mackenzie mightn't recognise the way Augusta looks, he certainly wouldn't recognise how it played. Mm-hmm. You know, what's this 13th old driver, 7 on one? You know, right. Put a bubbly wedge out, you know, a few years ago when he won. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, what's that about? Mm-hmm. Well, we've got, we got way down on architecture and okay. technology. I, I wanted to talk to you some about your career, but don't want to take too much of, of your time. But what would you say you're most known for of all of your playing days <laughs> in your career? Me? Yeah, well, yeah, the guy who fell on his balls. Yeah, that's it. Yep. You've yeah, you've got it's to like, get your Wikipedia page changed because yeah. it's like the third paragraph is that. Yeah. So I, I've always seen the GIF and the image of you. you the yeah, 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 People yeah. don't know what we're talking about. You've probably seen it before, and yeah. that you thought you made a putt. No, no, no. I, I knew okay. I'd left it short. Okay, I'm, do, I'm doing what that guy was doing on your shirt there. <laughs> the logo. Uh, you know. It was, it was a, I knew it was always going to be short because I spent my whole career leaving putts half an inch short, <laughs> and I kind of gave it the. Let the arm out, let go, like get it. And I just let go of the clear where you let go of it and you've got to grab it again. Yeah. And I remember it going out of my, not my hand, but my fingers. I, I wasn't, and I went to grab it and I missed it. And this thought flashed through my mind, that's going to fall on the ball. <laughs> and so I went after it and just like, God, and now I'm lying on the ground going, what the heck happened there? I mean, it was like, just. So you, the club hit the ball. Like the club hit the ball. I right hit the, the ball. So how many? What was the total well, penalty? I I thought it, I was playing with Gary Evans, who and Terry Price, two friends of mine. Pricey said, "Get off my! You're lying on my line. Will you get off my line?" <laughs> <laughs> Joking. So they both three putted, made five. So I, I still I still had the honor on the next tee. Um, because what you got the penalty for hitting the ball with the club in motion. No, 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 the, no. Was, uh, the penalty was 
the rules guy came out and he said, what happened? And, they, they, oh. <laughs> and he said, was the ball at rest? I said, the ball was at rest and you moved it. He said, well, it's one shot for moving a ball at rest. The irony with the new rules coming in is that won't be a penalty at all, <laughs> which is like, you know, if ever you wanted to argue against that rule change, put that video up and say, <laughs> so you don't think this should be a penalty? <laughs> like, this has to be a penalty, surely. So anyway, it was a one-shot penalty for the moving a ball at rest. So it was 20 years ago this year. And was there a penalty for the ball hit you after that? So I thought two for, two for hitting me, two for hitting the club, and one for the ball move. I, th- I thought it might have been five, but it was only one. Yeah. <laughs> How many times have you had to re- retell oh, that God, story over yeah. the years? Yeah, well, you, you the only was, it was the, it was the first day, it was the 14th hole at New South Wales, and we teed off the 10th. So it was only the 4th or 5th hole we played. And the, the guy in the in the TV tower was just testing the equipment. He wasn't, the, 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 it wasn't on TV live at all. It wasn't on TV at all. He was just testing the cameras to make sure the camera was working and he just happened to be filming it. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> you're lucky that. enough that that's captured. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you spent most of the eighties and nineties playing on the European yeah, tour. Yeah. What was, what were some of your biggest idols out there at that time? Well, Seve was. And know, for Seve. what reasons? Seve was everyone's idol. Yeah. I mean, I think if you if you spoke to Feldo and Langer now and Nick Price and those guys, they would they would tell you the same thing. As great as they were, Seve was the he was the man. He was just, you know, I first watched him play it. In fact, I was going to caddy for him. It was one of the great regrets of my life. Is that I had an exam at university that on the Wednesday it was the Wednesday of the prime. Ed Barner was Seve's manager, and a friend of mine out here, Jimmy Carter, was Ed's kind of agent in Australia. He'd organised for me to caddy for Seve, and I said, I rang him and said, I can't, I've got an exam on Wednesday, I can't do it. So I watched him play um, pretty much every hot Royal Melbourne in 1978. It was like, I was captivated by it. I thought it was the most amazing player to watch play golf. You know, just not only, you know, um, the shots he hit. But just how he how he was. I mean, you know, we I played with we were playing with Jeff the other day too. You know, because he, he played with Seve right at the end of his career. He said he couldn't play at all. Really? But he said he'd walk into the clubhouse with a blue cashmere jump around his shoulders. And he was still the guy. He was yeah. still the. He was the most. You know, charisma is a really overused word. Charismatics a really overused word, and there aren't many people who are very charismatic. But he was the. I was fascinated by. It. Whenever he was anywhere around where I was, I was looking at what it was. Just he was just an amazing guy to watch. Mm-hmm. Kind of anything, and, and to watch him play golf, and to walk, and to pull the club out of the bag, and to it was a it was five hours of full on Seve love fest, mm-hmm. and and I was it, it fascinated me. Did you play with him in yeah, European played, tour events? Yeah, 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 I played him quite a bit, and I was it different playing with him than playing yeah, with somebody else? Yeah. yeah, and he hit great shots. Mm-hmm. I mean, he hit. I remember you know whole Porto de Hero in Madrid, the uphill seventh hole, uphill dog leg left par four. Royal pine trees down the left, and you know we'd we'd hit a three wood and hit it out and hook it around the hook it up. You know we, we were we were actually hitting the right shot. We were kind of hitting a shot that was going the way the hole was going. Mm-hmm. We're going out to watch him play, and he he might have hit a, I think it, was, it might have been a driver. But it was probably that black Tony Pinner three wood, and he just hit this hard ripped down the left trees. It just cut back out. You know if it had gone straight, it was it was in the trees or out of bounds, and it just down the left over the bat and just cut it back into the fairway. And he would do it for, it looked like he was just doing it for fun because he could. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys hit your little drop there, but I'm going to try this shot. And, you know, and, and the 11th hole there, put, I mean, Greg Turner and I went out and watched him play the last 36 holes. We'd played early on the weekend both days and he was in the last group and we went and just watched him play. And there's a tiny little ledge at the back of the 11th green at Porto de Hero. Big bank on the right. Easy 
easy, it's, it's an easy two-iron shot to get the ball on the green. Just hit it to the bank and kick it down. And Howard Clark, who was, you know, everyone who played in Europe would tell you he was one of the best ball strikers in Europe and, and in the 80s. He had this kind of, you know, ripping little two-iron, hit the bank and kick down onto the green, you know, sort of 40 feet short. And there's a, there's a grand piano in the room here. And there's, the back of the green looks like the, the top of the grand piano. <laughs> it's a tiny kind of section up in the back of the screen. And Seve just got there with a two-iron and flew it there and stopped it. Just like... <laughs> It's almost like he, he and Howard Clark were, Seve was always going to win. He was one or two ahead, but it was almost like if you were Howard Clark, he just, you, I know you're going to win because you're better than me. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't do that. And you can, you're, and it, was, it was almost like he would just hit that shot and go, I'm better than you. And mm-hmm. I'm going to beat you because I'm better than you. It sounds like the effect that Tiger had. Yeah. It, 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 and he would just, he would just hit. It was almost like he did it for fun because he was just bored playing. And people said he wasn't a great driver. I mean, he was. I thought he was a great driver because he could. I mean, anyone—not anyone, but yeah, any, not, not not clearly not anyone. But Hale Irwin and Graham Marsh, who were two great drivers, tee the ball up, had a little cut or a little draw, high, you know, burn it through the wind. But they were just, they were just, they could xerox out shots like, like a machine making mm-hmm. bottle tops, one after the other. But they could never do what Seve could do. And Seve could have done that. You know, if you'd said to Seve at 19, Seve, I want you to go and learn to hit the ball 270 yards and dead straight, he could have done that mm-hmm. easily. Could have done it with a two-iron. Mm-hmm. But he would hit, you know, cuts and draws and lows and highs and sure he hit some off the map. But that was what that was that was part of the deal with what he was doing. But he didn't fear that. I thought I thought no, because he was playing golf and he knew he could get out of it. That's fine. I can I can thread the one through the gap or go over I can go over that tree or through that gap or so, you know, anyone who watched him play will tell you that every single – even Jeff, when he was – even when he was seven, was no good anymore. He would still hit one shot that would just go, what was that, you know? And, and when he was great, he would do that. It was like going to – it was like Royal Melbourne itself. You know, there was like 13 great holes. It was like – Seve would hit 10 or 12 shots that were like, my God, I mean, that was – who does that? Mm-hmm. You know, 10 at Royal Melbourne – I remember he got in the tee and he kind of, he just, you know, he played the crowd like it was Boulder Hagen again, re- reborn really. And, you know, he'd look at the iron and look at the yardage book and, you know, get your driver out, you weak bastard. You know, <laughs> pull, the, pull the driver every day and just smashed it straight to that green. And up in that sand short of the green, he just blew it out of there and blew it out to three feet every day and made, he made three birdies in a par. And, you know, it was like just, just, just that one hole was worth seeing him play. Mm-hmm. And, and, and everyone I think who played in Europe in his time would tell you the same stories and, and have the same reverence for how great he was at playing golf. What uh, did you play much with Monty? A little bit, yeah, yeah. Little, yeah, yeah. little polarizing fact, differences as far as charisma. Uh, the Monty was funny. You know, we, yeah, I have a funny story. We were <laughs> we played the last round of the 1990 Open at St Andrews together. We we're doing nothing in the tournament. We we're running 45th or something. Yeah. You know. And we're going down the fifth hole, and he started bitching about the pins. And you know, there's a joke in Australia about anyone who plays slowly, you know, starts t- starts lining out putts and full, you know, what do you think it is? The last round of the British Open. And Monty starts bitching about the pins. I said, Monty, it is the last round of the British <laughs> Open. And he said, Yeah, good point. But yeah, Monty was it was funny when Monty came out. A friend of mine played with him, and it was a tournament in Portugal, a Porto links course in Portugal. I think Stephen Richardson won and Monty you know this guy was Chris Moody friend of mine he was like came in that bloody Monty he can't hit it he bloody slapped it here and he slapped it there and hit this shitty two on that 
ran up to four feet and he had this low skanky drive and he shot 66 or something. It, it took a long time. I mean, anyone who saw Langer play or Seve or Woozy, you could watch them play for 10 minutes and, and you knew they could play. They were great. You could see they were different and better. And it took the tour a long time to recognise that what didn't look very good was actually really good with Monty. Because his swing didn't look any good, really. It was right. floppy. And, you know, I remember being in the range once with Ledbetter and I said, what would you do with that swing? He said, Guy, he said where would you start? <laughs> and that would have been, you know, if Monty had gone to Ledbetter and Ledbetter had thrown the book at him, you never would have heard of him. Sure. And he just, he was strong enough to stick with what he knew. And the tour took a lot of convincing that Monty was any good. But once they, once they watched and they looked and they saw that he just kept doing it over and over, you know, wow, this guy's really good. I mean, it was a crazy he never won in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, partly it was because he would, you know, he would chase a $100,000 appearance money fee in America the week before the US Open and get to the US Open. And like, Monty, why are you playing in Hamburg last week? What are you doing? You know. So I don't think he ever gave himself his best shot at winning in America, but he, Monty was great. He was a fantastic player. I feel like everyone's just got a favorite Monty yeah, story. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's got a Monty story. Is it? I mean, does he? When you play with him, is it clear that he could? How oh, much yeah. he hears from the crowd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's such a dick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he could play. Is he pretty rude to the fans? Pretty frequently. I oh, would bitch about. Yeah, how yeah. Clark was worse, but. We played in Austria one year with the, the, the cowbells with the cows with the big bells around the neck, and he would just drive Clark <laughs> insane because you know, it was a Nicholas course you know, in, in, the, in the, you know, the middle of the farm in, just out of Salzburg, and these bells were ringing incessantly, and you know, Clarky was just going ballistic. I can't play here. I can't play it. These cowbells never stop. Do you ever get used to? I'll let you out here on this. Do you ever get yeah. used to the the flies around here in the? No, sand I don't even belt? notice them. You I don't, don't notice, notice them because that's the only complaint I have about golf even, in the area. Australians don't even notice flies anymore. Hmm, that's they interesting. Notice them. Yeah, I mean, people come down and start complaining about flies. I'm going, what? Yeah, we don't even notice them. Wow, that's a skill. That's a that's a learned skill. Yeah, it, it just, does because it'll bite you, know, you. But you know, I guess you're kind of used to just the Australian salute. You know, yeah, just, just blow them away. But you know, I remember playing in Perth one year. We had to spray up, put air guard which is a, the, on your ball mm-hmm. the flies would it was, it was a plague and the, the fly you get to the top of your swing and like three flies would land on your ball which oh. was kind of annoying but so you sprayed your ball which kind of stopped that but i mean i never use fly spray i mean I, no one uses hmm. it no one we, we just don't even notice it yeah i gotta increase my toughness that means yeah. but uh mike thanks so much for your time man this was a lot of fun this was very well, hopefully, hopefully you didn't ramble on and no made, that was made perfect sense and that's perfect this is okay. this is uh the exact stuff that people people eat up okay. so i appreciate right. your time so thanks chris thanks, all right mate. enjoy cheers it. thanks Ta- all right, guys, that's going to do it for 2017 for the podcast. I want to send a, uh, a few thank yous out, uh, first of all, to, to all of you guys that have listened to this podcast almost religiously. Um, we sincerely appreciate you guys downloading, telling a friend. A lot of people ask what, what they can do to support, and I always tell people, just tell a friend. Uh, you'd be surprised how often I meet people that say I just discovered your podcast a month ago and I'm, you know, I'm six months back in the archives and stuff. So all we can ask of you guys is to keep helping us spread the word. Of course, we are a totally independent organization uh, that is doing our best to try to give you guys the content as real as we possibly can. So uh, we we couldn't do it without the support of uh, all of our listeners. So thank you everyone for giving us uh, just insane growth in the last year that uh, it's, it's allowed us to do a lot of different things and 
Also want to give a special thanks to the guys at Callaway that uh, took a chance on us this year and most definitely did not have to. And it's been uh, it's been a great relationship, and that's a relationship that's going to continue uh, forward into the next year. And we're really looking forward to the content we're going to produce together and uh, all of the all the resources they've put behind helping make us successful. And uh, it's been it's been a great relationship, and we're especially thankful to them. Um, if you guys could also, I, I would highly recommend there's a lot, a lot of work went into the pro shop this year. Uh, Neil really took, took ownership of that. And we have a lot of new stuff and I know Tron has helped a lot with that as well. But if you haven't swung by the pro shop, uh, we have a lot of really high quality stuff in there. Uh, in, anything you could possibly want is, is pretty much there. There's of course a couple things we want to add head covers. We're going to get there. I promise. But uh, a lot of cool stuff in there. So that's going to pretty much wrap it uh, for the year. Again, thank you to all, all of you that have given feedback, um, have listened, and helped spread the word. Uh, this has been so much fun, and it's given us the opportunity to bring it to you guys in a bigger and better way next year. Of course, we are a lot more than a podcast. Uh, we are very active on social media, so make sure you guys are following us on Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, and most importantly, probably for the next year, we're going to be doing a lot more video stuff. So, uh, we got a couple, couple really, really good things that are going to be coming early in the year. I highly encourage you to please subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, cause it's going to be start cranking out here pretty soon. Uh, in a frequent way, it's going to be, I'm really excited for what we have coming. I promise you guys, we're working really hard uh, to bring it to you. So, uh, without any further rambling, thanks again for all the downloads and all the listens this year, all the feedback and uh, helping make this show uh, as fun to produce as hopefully as it was to listen to. So uh, thank you guys, and uh, we'll see you again in 2018. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!